Exodus chapter 16. Look at the beginning of the chapter on to verse 15. Remember last time we considered the end of chapter 15, which is really the beginning of the journey in the wilderness after coming through the Red Sea. And there we saw the challenge of dealing with disappointment. The Lord led his people and he led them out into the wilderness and there was no water. It was the way that the Lord led them, but it wasn't what they anticipated. And there is a challenge that in the Christian life we must deal with the disappointment when we find that the way the Lord leads us is not the way that we would anticipate. And there they murmured. There was a grumbling complaint. There was no water. And we understood that this was part of God's demand. That we would walk by faith, not by sight, to follow him even into the wilderness, to follow him where there is apparently no way through. That was what happened at the Red Sea. The Lord led his people to the sea, and there was no way through the sea until he opened a way through the sea. There's a need to deal with disappointment when God doesn't lead us the way we expect. There's a need to deal with God's demand, which is to trust in him and to follow where he leads. And then there's also a need to deal well with God's deliverance. Because remember the Lord, he provided water in a miraculous way. The water was bitter. And so Moses was told to cut down a tree and to cast it into the bitter pool. And the water was made sweet. And then they came to Elam where there was a great well of water. But it seems that while they consumed that with relish. They did not take time to think of the goodness of God. Why is it so important when you're as a child that you're taught to say thank you. Well the reason why it's so important that children say thank you. Is they recognise more than the gift. But they appreciate the giver. They understand the relationship which has resulted in the gift. Sadly the children of Israel did not say thank you. They drank the water without any thought of the greatness of God. They didn't deal well with deliverance. They didn't learn from the experience. Do you know failure to learn in the classroom of comfort will mean that you must spend more time in the classroom of trials. And the wilderness journey proves that. Because they did not learn in the classroom of comfort. They must learn in the classroom of trials. Because the Lord will teach his people. Well from Elam. This place of deliverance. The Lord continues to lead his people. Remember he leads his people through the pillar of 
cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And we're told at the beginning of chapter 16 that they come into the wilderness of sin. Now you're not to be confused by that name and think that sin there is referring to iniquity and uncleanness. The name probably corresponds to Sinai. It's a coincidence that in our translation that Hebrew word is the same as what we use for sin and uncleanness. Well, in this passage, I want us to consider three headings, or consider the passage under three headings. And the first heading is this, God's people. God's people. This morning, we tried to think a little about pride. And how shocking it was to see the pride that was rising up in the hearts of the disciples at that particular point on the cusp of the crucifixion. But here, perhaps it's even more shocking. What we have is a petulance, which has pride in it. But it overflows into this angry, complaining, The word murmur and murmuring is repeated throughout this passage. Yes, they murmur against Moses, but more than Moses, they're murmuring against the one who has appointed and raised up Moses. They're murmuring against the Lord himself. And in their murmuring, there's an insinuation and an accusation and there's a resentment. Here is the people of God who the Lord has graciously delivered in a miraculous way. And the way is hard. And so they grumble and they murmur and they accuse the Lord who has brought them. And it's interesting that in verse 2 that it emphasizes that it was the whole congregation. Before it speaks about all the people. But here it's the whole congregation. In a strange way the squabbling people have found unity. But it's the most tragic of unities. Because it's a unity that's found in setting themselves against the Lord. God's people. God's people who here are guilty of refusing to recognize what God has done. He turned the water of Mara, which was bitter, so that it became sweet. He brought them through the Red Sea. There was a wall of water to the right, a wall of water to the left. And he brought them safely through. And then the Egyptians pursuing behind were consumed when the water returned to its place. He brought them out of Egypt by his mighty hand with the Passover. And before that, the plagues, which had not fallen upon the children of Israel, but upon their enemies who who had stood against them. 
And yet the people of God are guilty here of refusing to recognize what God has done, how short their memories are. They're caught up with the moment and the deliverance of yesterday seems irrelevant to them. This is tragic thinking. But not only is there a refusal to recognize what God has done, there's a refusal to recognize what God has promised to do. Because the Lord has spoken through Moses and told them that he will lead them out of bondage into the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. But that does not figure in our thinking today. All that figures in our thinking today is the difficulty of the way, the hunger of their stomachs, and therefore the hardness of God. There's a refusal to recognize what God has done. There's a refusal to remember, to recognize what God has promised to do. And there's also a refusal to consider what God might do. Remember how Paul puts it in Ephesians? He speaks about him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Who can imagine what God might do? And it's not that we are to figure out what God will do, but we are to be conscious that God will make a way. Because he has promised that he will deliver and he will bring us safely into his own presence. And yet what we find here is a refusal to remember, to consider, to recognize. You would expect that reason alone would be sufficient, that God, having done the greater, the Passover, the Red Sea, that he would then do the lesser. Food in the wilderness. That's the logic that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8 when he says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up from us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Having done this, will he forget you then in the detail of life? Of course not, says Paul. But here, the people of God say, He's forgotten us. He's brought us out into the wilderness. There's no food to eat. Oh, it would have been better for us to die in Egypt. This is outrageous, isn't it? Look at verse 3. The children of Israel said unto them, Moses and Aaron, Would to God that we died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. What they're saying is God's deliverance is worse than destruction. They would rather not live than walk the narrow way to take up their cross and to follow him. (coughs) Was it better serving Pharaoh? 
Or is it not the case that they're looking with rose-tinted glasses? Do you understand that expression, children? Rose-tinted glasses. You can imagine the lens of your glasses were coloured pink. And you put them on. And everything has a lovely pink glow to it. But not everything's not a lovely pink colour. But it just seems that way when you choose to look through these particular spectacles. And we use that expression when people look back on something and they remember it favourably when it wasn't really. And they're looking back at Egypt as if it was all lovely and cosy and pink and warm. Oh, that we died back in Egypt when we were there by the flesh pots, when we ate bread to the full. Is that true? Do you remember what we're told at the beginning of Exodus? We're told that the children of Israel rejoiced, that the Lord had visited them and looked upon their affliction. We're told in chapter 1 and verse 12 that Pharaoh made the children of Israel to serve their rigor and he made their lives bitter with hard bondage. So what we find here is that God's people are proud, rebellious, resistant, resentful. And it wasn't simply unique to them then. In the days of our Lord's public ministry in John's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 66, it says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Why did they go back? Because the way was too hard. The Apostle Paul, in the last letter that he wrote, the second epistle, the second epistle to Timothy, said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. He's gone back. What we see here in the children of Israel is a theme that recurs too often in the experience of the Lord's people. How many warnings are there in Hebrews? Not to go back. Not to forget the mercy of God. Not to be like those who in the wilderness provoked him to wrath. These warnings are there because there is that tendency and it rises up in our own hearts because the way is hard. It is a narrow way and we are to take up our cross and to follow him. And there are unexpected hardships. I think it is the case Those who follow the Lord know there will be certain trials. And so they set their minds to deal with those certain trials. But what makes the way most hard is the unexpected trials. The children of Israel knew they must travel through the wilderness. And then there was no water. And then there was no bread. 
And they were ready to travel through the wilderness. But when there was no water and there was no bread, they were hungry and complained against the Lord. Friends, you must fight against the temptation to feel sorry for ourselves in a way is hard. We must fight against the tendency not to recognize what God has done and not to recognize what God has promised to do. Because if you will remember what he has done, and if we remember what he has promised to do, then will we be more happy to trust in him and to wait upon him with expectation. The children of Israel as a hungry people should have this time been full of a zealous expectation about what the Lord would do to sustain them. That hunger should have added to their excitement. Instead, it added to their bitterness. What we find here is a tremendous poverty of spirit. They've been set free from Egypt, but essentially they're still prisoners. No longer prisoners of Pharaoh, but they're prisoners to the smallness of their own thinking. They're like people who've become institutionalized. I remember spending time with a man who spent many years in prison. And to help him adjust as he came toward the end of his time in prison, he had day release and he would come and do some work. And it was an environment where we supported him to try to make it easier for him to get used to living in the outside world where so many things had changed. He wasn't used to being free. He was used to doing what he was told and living in such a confined space that the outside world terrified him. And we find here that the people of God can become institutionalized into this narrow way of thinking So when God brings them out and delivers them and brings them into freedom, they're at a loss. That's why Paul says, you must be transformed by the renewing of the mind. Our minds must be transformed. And how are our minds to be transformed? It's through a drawing near to God. To consider him, what he has done, by what he has promised to do. And where do we find the record of what he has done and what it is that he has promised to do? In his word. In his word. We see, first of all, God's people here. And it's not a flattering picture that is drawn, is it? But we also see in this passage God's patience. God's patience. Amidst all the repeated murmuring, 
the complaint, and the accusation. We see the patience of Almighty God. Without doubt, Moses demonstrates patience and he's regarded as the meekest man. But more than that, it is the patience of a holy God who does not consume them nor cast them from him. It is the duty of the church, it is the calling of the church to honour God by rejoicing with gladness, by declaring the wonder of his grace. And the church here singularly fails to do so. And their failure dishonours God. But yet the abundance of God's grace is still demonstrated as he deals so tenderly and patiently with them. They are referred to again and again in this passage as the children of Israel, the covenant people. That is not disguised and it's not denied. The Lord does not cast them off. He abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself and therefore he will not deny those who he has brought to himself. The patience of Almighty God. Have you never found that? Have you never been brought to recognize recognize that in your own Christian experience? Perhaps there have been these times when like the children of Israel here, you have been tempted to complain against God. The difficulty of the way. The hardness of the experience. The impossibility of the demands. And if you never stop to recognize the tender patience of God who endures with you through that. He not only endures with you through that, friends. He's given you psalms that you might sing to express your complaint. And the hardness of the way. And he says so very graciously. Come to me. And bring all your cares and all your burdens. How much better it would have been if they would prayed humbly. And sought deliverance. They would be in a much better place to appreciate his grace but yet his grace is demonstrated that he is patient does not mean that it was okay for them to grumble and murmur rather the warning is not to provoke God Hebrews chapter 3 quotes Psalm 95. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost has said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. 
in the days of the temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. What a warning it is not to be like them, but rather to draw near to this gracious, patient God with expectation and to seek deliverance in all the hardness and the narrowness and the stress of life. Has he not brought you this way that you might learn of him? Has he not brought you this way that he might deliver you in a glorious way? Has he not brought you this way that he might work in you and work through you? Friends, he does not deal with us as we deserve, does he? In the narrative here, there's no withering rebuke. Their sin is not glossed over, but his grace prevails. They murmured and they murmured and the Lord said to Moses, I shall feed them. I shall give them meat and I shall give them bread. The patience of God, the one who sustains even his complaining people in their complaint. The very breath that they drew to express their grumbles against them. There's three things here. There's God's people. There's God's patience. And there's God's provision. And there's two aspects to his provision. There's the quail. And there's the manna. Perhaps we should say there's three aspects to his provision. There's the quail. There's the manna. But there's the Lord himself. The quail is a single event. There's meat that comes that night. As we read the narrative of the wilderness journey, we see they did not receive quail. They did not receive meat day after day. There is another event in Numbers 11. It's a separate event because it was after the tabernacle was built when the Lord again fed them with quail. And in that time... There were some differences and it demonstrated judgment. But here, there is mercy. The quail are a migratory bird and they pass by that way. It was divine intervention, it was a glorious miracle, and the Lord ordered it in such a way. That there was quail for them to eat. But secondly, there was manna. And the manna was to become their ordinary daily provision. So much so that they were to receive it every day until. 
Joshua chapter 5, they'd crossed the Jordan and they were in the promised land and there before the great city of Jericho and eating the, the, the grain, the harvest of the land. The name manna, it comes from verse 15. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, it is manna. But that could also be translated, what is it? They said, what is it? And so the name manna comes from the word what. It was so unexpected. It was so unique. It was so miraculous. We're told it came upon the ground like hoarfrost. We've seen that in recent days. All these crystals of ice there in the morning. And they were to go and to gather the manna. And it was their bread. Psalm 78. He rained down manna upon them to eat. And had given them of the corn of heaven. Man did eat angels food. God's gracious provision. The provision of quail. The provision of manna. But the provision of himself. Because in these things what he is saying is here I am. I am the Lord who has delivered, and I am the Lord who shall sustain. Look at the words in verse 9. Moses spake unto Aaron, Say unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he hath heard your murmurings. And it came to pass, as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. It seems that this cloud which spoke of the presence of the Lord, perhaps that great light in it intensified. But the Lord is saying, here I am. And as you hear these words, it seems so ominous. And yet the Lord said, I will send bread and I will send meat and I shall keep you. God's gracious provision. Grace and mercy. Psalm 103. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. God's gracious provision. And that manna was illustrative of his grace. It was bread that they ate. But it was illustrative of his grace, his loving kindness, his own presence. It spoke of God. And the Saviour makes reference to this in John chapter 6, where he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us his bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth in me shall never thirst. Oh, how tragic when we look at God's people 
who impoverished the thinking, how hard the heart. But then when we think of God's patience, and when we think of God's provision, what a gracious God we have. The one who calls our murmurers and complainers. Friends, let us seek him daily. Let us seek him daily. Just make, let me make reference to verses 4 and 5 where it talks about gathering more on the sixth day. We'll consider that further next time from verse 16. All I simply want to say here is this. There's a Sabbath principle. Before the children of Israel reach Mount Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments, the fact of the Sabbath day, it was set apart. It was a time which the Lord had, had marked for himself. What a gracious God we have who orders his provision in such a way. Well, let us not be like the children of Israel, but rather let us be as we ought to be. Isn't it so that we who are the people of God should honour him and should show forth his praise with our joy and our satisfaction in his wisdom and in his mercy and in his love. Amen. Let's pray.